You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rob Ballantyne was suggested by a listener as someone who we should talk to. As I said earlier, I really don't know a lot about Rob, so I've prepared myself with a quick Google search, but there wasn't much there. Let's see if our listener recommendation is on the mark. Welcome to The Crunch, Rob. Thanks, Cam. I was, uh, actually got you on the show because um, it might have been your mum or some other relative uh, emailed in The Crunch and said, you've got to get Rob Ballantyne on the show. And I'm always a, a bit of a whore for my um, for my commenters to do what they want. So, so here you are on the show. What do you think um, prompted this person? Um, I don't know if it was your mum or not, but <laughs> who put who said, uh, let's talk to Rob Ballantyne. Look, I have my suspicions. And I spoke to a lovely young woman in Timaru on Saturday morning. We were down there at the Timaru Farmer's Market. And um, she came up to me with one of your uh, your pamphlets, the Reality yep. Check radio pamphlets. And I had a, a quite a long chat with her. She has a very interesting past. And uh, I suspect it was her that put my name forward to to you guys. Well, we've called you now, and now we can learn a little bit more about Rob Ballantyne. Now, you've had a radio show yourself in the past or currently? It was uh, 20-odd years ago now, actually, Cam, in Ashburton. I hosted a farming show called Hay Fever and Headphones with Rob Ballantyne, and uh, it was more successful than I gave it credit for at the time because when I left, um, I'm told it had quite a big impact on the station and uh, not not that it was really my doing, but anybody who had hosted it at the time, obviously farming in Ashburton's massive. And if you take yeah. um, all of that advertising uh, potential away, it is obviously going to have a financial effect on the, the radio station. But uh, it opened a lot of doors for me. It was incredible how um, how many people listened to it, I believe. And people years later um, were still saying, hey, I remember you from somewhere. Yeah, um, it's that little earwig. They can hear that voice and, and they hear you speak and they go, gosh, I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah. It's amazing how that flows through even 20 years later. Well, I must admit, coming off the hills, uh, my my parents decided to sell the farm just a bit earlier than that. And uh, I was lucky enough to be asked to come in and, and sell advertising to the to the show that was being hosted by somebody else. And uh, I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I needed to sort of get back into um, society, as it were, because I'd been running around the hills with dogs and yeah. <clears throat> you know sheep and cattle for, for a long time. And um, then the, the host of the show left, and I was put in the hot seat, and it just sort of went from there. But that was a, a wonderful time, and it did open a lot of doors. Um, I, I, as, as a candidate for Rangatata, now, I would have liked to have thought that the public speaking ability that came from that show might have yep. carried on, but it doesn't. It's not like riding a bike. <laughs> and I have to reinvent my whole sort of public speaking ability um, yep. as I go around now. So, um, but I know I can do it. It's just, <laughs> it's just getting back on the horse, really. Yeah. Is this the first time you've stood for parliament? Absolutely. And I never, ever thought in a million years I would. So what, um, what called you to that then? So like many, uh, particularly South Island rural 
sort of thinking people sitting on the couch or in the tractor or uh, wearing your earbuds around you know the farm. Increasingly over the last, particularly the last three years, I've become more anxious, concerned, at times somewhat angry mm. uh, about the direction that that the government has been taking us. And it seems that uh, there is a disrespect for those who have built their lives in this country for, in my case, five generations. But, um, it, you know, I, as I say, I feel as Indigenous as anybody here. And, and I, I, feel like I'm being, <laughs> I feel like I'm being marginalized. And a lot of people I talk to say, you know, I don't even feel like this is my country anymore. And mm. I thought, my God, you know, we're all leaving it up to the days and the someones. And, and it's not being fixed by anybody. And I thought, well, you know, it comes down to each and every one of us. So I stood up off the couch and I thought, right, who am I going to attach my flag to? And I looked around and it seemed that New Zealand First was by far and away the party that I found resonated most of my own values. Yeah, I get asked by um, potential candidates all the time which party they should stand for. And I say to them, and, and this is all across all parties, people's supporters of parties and things, they ask me what I should stand for. And I always say to them, you need to find out which party resonates. And I use that term deliberately because all too often you see these careerists, uh, politicians, people who have really not had many jobs uh, and haven't lived in the real world, wanting to choose a party, but nothing actually resonates with them because they haven't lived. Mm. And and I think you know, it's, it's interesting that you use that word because it's the same word that I use when I'm talking to potential candidates. Yeah. And I, th- and I think resonates is something that's more personal, um, is deeper than saying, rah, 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 I wear a blue shirt or I rah, 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 I wear a red shirt. Look, I it's- totally agree. And for me, and I think a lot of the, the candidates that are standing, and, and, you know, it seems that looking around the table at Candidates College and the conference and things, mm. uh, there's so many new candidates, and that's that's to be expected when you haven't been in, in Parliament for three years. But the one thing we all have in common is, well, not all of us, but most of us have come from our own jobs, uh, our own careers, our own lives, and we've all had enough of the direction we're going. And it's it's coming from the heart, which I think is imp- is what you're saying is we're not looking for a new uh, income stream. Mm. We're looking for a new direction to take the country because we're not happy with the current one. Does that feeling, that overriding feeling that the country is not on the right direction or has lost its way, does that, it's not just the last six years, is it? I get the feeling that it's a little bit deeper than that for you. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it stems right back to, I guess, um, you know, let's let's not put too fine a point on it. Then, um, the Waitangi Tribunal, when that was established, it suddenly gave all sorts of people renewed hope that um, that their grievances might be heard. And look, one thing I need to say straight off the bat is that none of us in New Zealand First are anti-Maori. But there is a sector of Māoridom that is causing a lot of harm and is threatening our democracy and our freedoms 
and it's been coming along for a long time, as you say. And uh, in the last three years, it seems to have grown enormously, and it's been encouraged by by some. And I'm going to use a Winston word here yeah. by woke virtue signalers. <laughs> yeah, and it just it doesn't sit particularly well, and that's putting it politely with South Island battlers who have grafted damned hard for many, many generations to create something special. And now we seem to be having all these threats coming in and undermining what we've built. And I'm, I'm against it. And I can't sit on the couch and whisper to my partner, I don't like this. I need to get up and stand up and and shout it and do something about it. So you're literally standing your ground. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And look, I might get run over. That's part and parcel of you're putting yourself in the path, you know? Yeah. But but you're putting yourself out there and you're saying, look, I've I've got an opinion on this and I'm going to do something about it. Yeah, that's fair. But you're a man of action, aren't you? You've worked in farming, you've worked in sales, and I always think sales is a perfect um training ground for politicians, but not too many sales people make it into into parliament and i think that's probably because they have to take a haircut (laughs) (laughs) you're absolutely right i mean uh you know i started off quite young um obviously on in a farm Mm. i mean everybody's selling themselves to one extent or another right absolutely from the the day you're in school but you know start you start off you're selling livestock on a farm and i I spent some time selling real estate with pine gorgonis yeah after the farm was sold um, obviously, the radio advertising and then there was stock feed and things. And nowadays, I have my own fertilizer importing business. So, take a haircut to go into politics, probably. But it's the right thing to do, isn't it? Absolutely, because I look at the future for my son, and should he have children, um, I'm I'm despairing at whether he is going to want to stay in New Zealand. Uh, if the wrong decisions are made before the end of this year, there's this. You mentioned before this these grievances and these woke wombles. I think it's more sinister uh, than just woke virtue signalling type people. There are a group of New Zealanders who are inherently racist and uh, very vociferous and have somehow got the media on board with their agitation to the point where uh, anybody, I mean, you've got what five generations in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. You say you're as indigenous as, as the next person. and I feel that way. You're probably right. You're, in fact, you, you, you've been in New Zealand longer than I have. I mean, I was born in Fiji, so, so I, I'm, a, I'm what they'd call a settler. But mm-hmm. it's, it's funny, in Fiji, uh, I'm called a Kaiviti. And that means Fiji born. Uh, and that's anybody who was born in Fiji is a Kaivedi. And foreigners are called Kaivalangi. But here we've got in New Zealand this group of people who think because they've got an ancestor in the past that had, that was Maori, that they have special rights above everybody else when demonstrably the treaty says otherwise. But now we've got this revisionist history that is dividing society where people are called uh, either Maori or settlers, which is such so divisive. Mm, absolutely. 
this this is where the I mean you're bang on, and you know New Zealand First is all about equality for all. Mm. We're we're not interested in separatism. We only have to look at Zimbabwe to see where that leads, and we I won't say all of us, but some of us realise that co-governance will quickly become self-governance. Yeah, and self-governance we're told will come with a price of $20 billion a year, apparently, that they want from mainstream taxpayers to fund their self-governance. And then you have blatant apartheid. Now, do we want to go down that road? Most people don't realize you can't have democracy with co-governance. They're chalk and cheese. They don't work together. Well, that's the insidious thing about it, isn't it? It's been foisted on us in uh, in health, it's been foisted on us in a number of you know specific locations, and nobody voted for this. Nobody chose this, but it's been introduced. That you know, if we give something a Maori name, and we put some Maori in charge, like the, the Maori Health Authority or whatever it's called, that it'll be wonderful from from that day forward. And we're seeing now, especially in the, in the health sector, that that's not the case. The sep- idea of separatism within within a sector is now just growing, and the media are pushing it along. and And I think part of that is the Public Interest Journalism Fund, where they basically have to have an editorial line that is pro what those sentiments are. And so, there's nobody being yep. critical of, of these. Nobody's standing up to them. That's well, that's the, what New Zealand First is doing, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And the the issue is that if you stand up against it you'll be shouted down as, you know, racist. Yeah. And it's a racism is one of the things that you least want to be labeled as <laughs> because it sticks. And the one thing about New Zealand First that I like when it comes to the race card mm. is that in my view, New Zealand First is by far and away the party that has the greatest cultural mandate to sweep this ideological folly into the gutter. Sorry, it may not be the gutter, but you know, sweep it aside and let us get on with with our normal freedoms and democracy and and the things that that make New Zealand great. Absolutely, and and one of the things we're also very concerned about is that once upon a time, New Zealand was the greatest little country on the planet. We had incredible standards of living. We had an amazing health system. We had we our, our um, pharmac system was the envy of the world, mm. um, and I think I'm right in saying that our exchange rate was once higher than the American dollar. Now we are on a spiral that just it's continues down in so many facets of of people's lives, and we're all wondering where the hell it's going to stop, and. Somebody has to take control. It may not be what some people like. And Winston points out that there's probably about 8% of the radicals, the, the cultural minority, yep. and maybe 92% of, uh, of Maori ethnicity that don't really want to have a bar of it. And as I want to repeat that none of us are anti-Maori. I mean, Winston Peters is half Maori. Uh, Shane Jones is half Maori. I have my my first cousin's oldest boy is uh, Mike McRoberts, mm. Mm. and he's a fine. I used to call him a young man, but he's 
none of us are so young anymore. Uh, no. He's a great guy. And, you know, looking back, I played rugby for 30 years and I never gave any consideration to what color a guy's skin was when you're lining him up to tackle him or whatever. It's just another rugby player. We all laughed and, and sang and, and celebrated after every game without any thought as to what our ethnicity was. And these days, you can't help but wonder, I wonder which side of the coin you're on. You know, well, that, I wonder if you're one problem, of the eight or one it? of the 92. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? We've we've now become so polarised that people are too scared to voice opinions and then too scared to challenge other people's opinions. And, you know, I, I like using the rugby analogy, like you play the game hard and politics is a game. It, I always call it a game, uh, the best game in the world because it doesn't have any rules. But <laughs> But the thing about rugby or indeed most sport is that when you've finished competing, you then sit down and have a beer or, or a chat or a meal or something and have discourse with the guys that you were fiercely competing with just half an hour ago, even. Exactly. And it seems to me that we've lost that ability, that congeniality, that Kiwi, yeah, g'day, mate, how's it going? You know, talk to anybody. Now you're too scared to talk to people. Oh, look, I totally agree. It, it's become nasty. And it's a damn shame because some of the people, uh, I don't know many politicians, but I, I know a couple and I, I've got a lot of respect uh, for Nicola Grigg. She's with National and so on. She works hard. She's good at what she does. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we grew up on farms that neighbored each other. Um, and she's got a lovely family and, and there's no way that anybody is going to try and uh, force me to dislike her because she's on another team. Yeah. So I'm I'm personally reluctant to get into all those, you know, what you see on TV and, and what's portrayed in the media with all the little tanties and uh, the bickerings and the schoolboy, you know, mm. crap that goes on. It's, it's just, it's not what the people want to see. And it's, it's childish it, and demeaning. It really. is, and it's, come on, we, we've got bigger things to be concerned about. Uh, let's get on and fix it. Now, in Rangitata, you've got uh, a Labour MP currently. Correct. Uh, and you've got a young fella um, from the National Party, uh, James Me Mega. Mm -hmm. um, what are they like, uh, A, in the community, and B, personally? <laughs> to be honest with you, I haven't met, I haven't face-to-face -face met either of them. Right. Um, and I'm, to, to go on what other people have said to me, all of the candidates standing in Rangitata are great people. You know, they're, they're doing what, what they feel is right. They've got their heart and the job. And I'm looking forward to the upcoming Meet the Candidates events that we're, we've got booked in to rock up and have a, a chat with these guys. If you're going to get up off the couch and do something about the country and where it's going, then you've got to be motivated. You've got to be, you've got to have incentive. And what's more, you're putting yourself in, in harm's way because a lot of people just want to gobble you up and spit you out as quick as they can. Yeah. I, I, I look at all these other candidates and I say, well, good on you. You know, you've got the courage of your conviction. And that, that means something to me. 
It's they, might like, be, they might be wrong or they might be <clears throat> del- deluded or they might be misguided, but at least they're standing up for something. Well, exactly, and it's like being in sales. There will always be a competitor. But the worst thing you can do is rock up to your client and denigrate your competitor because it's not, it's not a good look. And you'll never walk away from that conversation with your client thinking you're a better person. Or your own dignity intact. Yep. Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I, when I was in sales, uh, I always used that mantra, never, never talk about your opposition. Even if, even if your client raises you know, your opposition, well, you talk about features and benefits and things like that, but you don't talk about them. And politics can be like that as well. Where you, you, I mean, this is what I just could not believe that Act and David Seymour ran uh, a running still attacks against Winston Peters. From a purely political point of view, you, you just don't do that. Uh, secondly, negative ads can backfire on you, and I think this has backfired spectacularly. And Winston, I'm pretty sure, will be chuckling away over a scotch somewhere. Thinking back to uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's quote about the enemy, when the enemy's making a mistake, don't interrupt them. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, a week's a long time in politics. If you follow popularist talkback radio, mm. And you think that that emulates the full feeling of the country, then you're treading a very fine line and, and, uh, the nice because it's easy, I guess. I, I look at talkback radio these days. And for those people that are generally happy to put their opinion out, they're paid, they're paid to put their opinion out there. I yep. see it as lazy radio myself because yep. when I was, Doing, I never played music. I was always interviewing farming leaders and prime ministers and God knows what. Um, but it was always my preferred option never to lend my opinion to the argument. And mm. I think that it's it's far more professional if the listener is given two sides of the argument, one pro, one con, and then the presenter shuts the hell up and lets the listener decide. Yeah, that's been and, the hardest. That's been the hardest thing for me doing a radio show now is shutting up and letting you know, my guests, like yourself, talk. And we learn more about people by letting them talk rather than trying to shout them down. And you know, I watched uh, David Seymour the other day on television uh, being attacked by Simon Shepherd, and I thought this is terrible to watch, worse to listen to. And hasn't enlightened us at all, other than the fact that we know that Simon Shepherd wants to get David Seymour, and David Seymour that can't get a word in edgeways. And it doesn't matter what the politics of the situation is; it's a spectacle that's not pleasant to watch. But for some reason, every other uh, media outlet out there has this attack type mentality on the people that they're talking to and interviewing them. And you've got to wonder eventually whether people just stop going on those shows because it's not enlightening. And maybe they start looking more towards Reality Check Radio and what we're doing, where we let people talk and we can understand what's driving them and why they're standing for the party that they're standing for, why they believe the things that they believe. Mm. And we've lost that uh, somehow along the way. 
We have, Cam, but the other thing is that um, you don't even have to have uh, a contributor on the other end of the line these days for these opinionated radio presenters to just reel off uh, a, a diatribe of their own opinion. And and I'm sure that they believe that the public are going to take every word they say as gospel. And for me, sometimes I think, oh, my God, you know, listen to yourself. Um, just take a breath. Because as we all find out eventually as we get a little bit older, not everybody's going to agree with you. No. That's okay. Yeah, perfectly all right. David Seymour, he comes from the heart. He thinks what he's doing is perfectly uh, perfectly right and honourable. Mm. And look, to a large extent, all parties have the right to, to feel that way. And, and it's not just a right, but they all feel that like they're doing the right thing for a, for a particular sector of the economy or, or the sector of, the, of New Zealand society. <clears throat> so everybody's entitled to their view. And I think Winston has been the subject of incredible vitriol yeah, and it's he is. it's been so sad to witness coming from a, albeit a short media background. I think it's been sad to witness, possibly driven by, as you say, the the, the great journalism bribe. Um, watch the media deliberately pull them apart, and I don't. I would just like to say that in, in the last three years, with him not being there, look what's happened. You know, he, he's, there's been nobody to hold their feet to the fire. And while he's he may not have had huge authority or decision-making power as a minor coalition partner, things, if they were going to work against the progress of the country, they worked much slower while he was there controlling it. But now he's not there and it's like a free-for-all. And it's, you know, we are, we're, we're falling without control. And I, I just, I can't wait until October because we need to stop the free fall as quick as we can. It's costing us too much. There is a huge cost to society with division because division sows seeds of distrust. It sows seeds of um, disharmony and it also grows grievance. So whilst some people are saying that we need to address these grievances from the past, we're creating new grievances, it seems, at the moment. I think most of New Zealand feels that we have addressed grievances for decades. Let's draw a line under it mm. and let's let's just all get on. Everybody has the same opportunities. They're born with nothing. We go out with nothing. And I used to think that, you know, New Zealand, I was so pleased as a child to, you know, when I realized that I've been born into a New Zealand society when I looked what was on the TV coming back from other countries, I thought, geez, aren't we lucky that we don't have any of that crap going on like they do? Yeah. Thought, what a great little country. And I thought, you know, the opportunities here are boundless. And I, I taught, I, I tutored teenagers uh, a few years ago in agriculture. And the one thing that was missing for them, the piece of the puzzle that just turned their lives around completely was a message of hope telling them that. Look, all of you guys in this classroom, these are low stream kids. Mm. Many of them had social issues or, or personal uh, disabilities, mental issues. Mm. Um, but for somebody to stand there and say, look, every one of you guys has the potential to be, to be millionaires. 
You don't have to have a great education behind your name. This is a country where if you have a passion and perseverance, you can get on and do anything. And that that comes from, you know, my my forebears as much as anything. You know, the, the John Ballantyne of, of Ballantyne's department stores from 1872 and, and TJ Edmonds of Shorter Eyes. These are guys mm-hmm. that are directly, you know, my my forebears. And when I was brought up, looking at what they had achieved, to me, it was like anything's possible. And I'd, I'd been trying to tell these kids in school, look what you can do if you really want to put your, your back behind it. Um, but now we have the situation where there's a whole new factor that comes into it. And the threat of a wealth tax, the threat of having your assets controlled by, particularly farming, controlled by an iwi that wants to limit what you can do in certain areas and and having people sort of have the right to crawl all over it when it doesn't suit you. There are all these extra factors coming into it that just make life murky. And and the, so the future doesn't look clear anymore. Yeah. And going back to the hope, I was giving these guys this lesson in hope because that that's the, the missing link mm, mm. for young people. And I'd write on the whiteboard how you're going to go from where you are now to being a great success. And they were eating out of my hand. I have, you know, dare I say so myself. And I thought, wow, this is so satisfying. I take that another five years from now. I'm not too sure if I could go back and teach the same thing. It just wouldn't look the same. You'd have to factor in so much contingency of, of where we're going and what that's going to mean for future business people. That that's the terrible thing, isn't it? We've seen this, you know, this woke culture that can, seems to control the language and control how you're supposed to think, supposed to act. You've got teachers that are becoming who are actually activists. Uh, you know, you see uh, every year there's there's a climate change protest involving all the schools and school kids, and they're petrifying these children that they have no future, and then. We wonder why, as young adults, they're they're failing in society because there's nothing to drive them. I was always told, and you know, my grandmother used to say to me, "Dream big, achieve big," and uh, you know she was right. Um, but all of the this woke culture is about uh, demeaning and diminishing the abilities of the individual and telling them that no, that's not the right way to think about this. But on the other hand, you've got another part of the woke culture that's saying, oh, yes, the, the choices of the individual are paramount. You can choose to be a boy or a girl or, or, or whatever you want to be. Um, and, and there's this disconnect. On one hand, they're saying that society's doomed, that we're going to die from climate change. There's all these things that are going wrong. Uh, you know, we need to have this and that and and everything else. And on the other hand, we're saying, do what you want, mm. as long as it doesn't cross over onto those things over there because you, know, you touch those, that's a third rail. We'll just yep. excommunicate you from our group. Yeah. Look, and it's frightening them. It is frightening. The, the thing is, too, that I think it's and, – and New Zealand first feels that it's immoral mm. to have gender identity uh, being taught in primary school to have sex education being taught in primary school. Let these kids be kids. There's plenty of time for that stuff. It's not like they're they're not even thinking that way at primary school. 
But and who asked for all of this? Who said we want uh, gender identity to be taught in in schools? Was it the kids? Was it the kids' parents? Who asked for it? Well, that's and, a really good and how question. Did, and how did it get there? I guess minorities who have in some way felt aggrieved while they were growing up, who have decided to have uh, a gender change. Maybe maybe it's um, <laughs> it is woke to give these people all this oxygen mm. to make yourself look caring and thoughtful and inclusive. But there's one th- it's one thing to be inclusive. It's another thing to uh, to make um, hay out of it or to, or to try and make enormous kind of gains, political gains maybe out of it. And I don't mean political and government sense, but workplace. But it's an agenda, it. isn't it? It's an agenda. Yeah. And I mean, these days you've got people going around looking for certain genders and certain ethnicities to bring onto their boards or on, into their workplaces just to make, because they feel that they should to make their businesses look more inclusive to their market. Um, rather than hiring the best people, they have to be the best people because they are of of a particular gender, of a particular ethnicity, whatever, which I think is in itself all a bit sad. I think, but it's, you know, but it's gone one, further. One of, it's gone further than, from that. I mean, we saw, you know, last week uh, Chris Hipkins welcoming BlackRock into the country for the, with this $2 billion, you know, fund, uh, which is going to focus on climate change. And, and the rationale that we were sold on that, even though we get no choice in the matter, but this is the rationale they said, if we don't uh, have uh, our products being clean and green, then people won't buy them. And they say that like it's true, but it's bollocks. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because I agree. just go into the warehouse or Kmart or any store in New Zealand, it's filled with cheap Chinese uh, goods that we didn't yeah. give two hoots what their climate credentials are. So why are we prostituting ourselves to to this goal when the market looks for the best you can get for a price point? You've been in sales, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know? You're so right. And New Zealand is so small that if we became carbon neutral tomorrow, it would make no, absolutely no effect on the graph, the carbon graph uh, globally. It would make no impression on it whatsoever. So why are we hell-bent on destroying the economy in the race to get there first? It's because people who are making the decisions don't understand economics. They don't understand manufacturing. They don't understand exporting and the markets. And they don't Um, understand farming. Because you know, we we hear constantly that farmers are the bane of all evil in New Zealand, you know, from climate change to cow farts to everything else. But every farmer that I know, and I know a few because I I like hunting on their land, so I'm nice to them mm-hmm. and their mates. With them. But these are guys that are looking after the land. They're not trying to pollute water because guess what? That's how they feed the cattle. That's how they. Water the cattle, the sheep, and, and everything else on that. Water is important to them. Yeah, and you, it's it's about feeding a narrative, Cam. Obviously, mm. and um, look, we all have to admit that there is a very, very small percentage of uh, land users who have uh, made monumental stuff ups in the past, 
Yep. And they're very obvious from the road when you drive past and uh, and the neighbours are probably thinking, what the hell are you doing, man? Yeah. But that can be dealt with on a social level, very locally. Yes. You know, if, if, you're, if you're regular at the pub or whatever, or if you're sports in a sports team or even just, um, you know, within a rural community, the grapevine is thick and healthy. Yes. And it can be dealt with very easily. And and look, the other thing about farmers is they're always looking for better ways to do things. And well, why wouldn't you? You know, yeah. why wouldn't you look for a better way to do something? It has, but it has to be cost effective. It does, and I, I, um, I do worry that, in particularly, in particular, my own electorate, mm. uh, South Canterbury, recently has has been the subject of a renewed areas of natural significance mm. program, and it's going to have quite an effect on. I, I guess more often than not, it's simply the stress that it puts on farmers and the underlying current of don't forget this land's not really yours. You might have paid for it and you can have the use of it, but it's not yours. And anytime we want, we can come in and undermine your your business operation. And don't forget that each of these farmers is operating many, you know, multi-million dollar businesses. They're not just um, a cafe or uh you know, a, a taxi service or something. Yeah, these guys have invested, and it's taken them <clears throat> twenty years in most cases to pay for it. So well, they're they're long term. Yep, lots they're long term thinkers, um, and they're in it for the long haul, no matter what it takes, because that's what they love. And if you've got passion, it's going back to, to tutoring my, my kids. You've got to have a passion for it. Go and find your passion. Farming is the passion that these guys. They can't get out of their system, and they're prepared to give everything to it. And then somebody comes along and says, eh, you know what, um, we might have to just alter things here. So it undermines the very foundation of what these guys have been doing. Don't forget that right now we need the farmers, the productive sector, the fishermen, um, the, the manufacturers. We need them to dig deep and try and dig us out of this balance of payments deficit that we're in. It's 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 becoming ah, it's astonishing how quickly it's grown, and it's part of the reason, I guess, that um, that I'm here talking to you today is that mm. we have to stem the flow of debt because we're thinking grandchildren now, not just children. It's it's going to take a very very long time. We need to clear the way for the agricultural sector, the, the fisheries, manufacturers, the even the whatever is left of the mining sector, we need to get overseas funds into this country quickly. I, you know, I look back on the Muldoon years and uh, I'm seeing a lot of the hallmarks uh, now, is particularly in the economy. And I can remember debates on television where Muldoon would scoff at, you know, opposition politicians talking about how the balance of payments uh, deficit was huge, and it was everybody talked about it. You know, I, maybe it was my perception that everybody talked about it, but it seemed like everybody talked about it, and it was a concern that we had the balance of payments deficit. And it seems that these days we've got a balance of payments deficit where we're spending more than we're earning, and uh, nobody's talking about it really, except for New Zealand First. You know, Grant Robertson's going, "Oh, our our books are great." Um, 
you know, in, in, in a measurement of the OECD, you know, we're about middle of the road, as if that means anything, right? It, it's like saying we're first at this or second at that or whatever. It means nothing other than to the people who are involved in that sport or that idea or, or that policy. Well, Cam, for a country that has now very limited mining, uh, we, we have resources, but we're not allowed to mine them. Yeah. Um, for a country that is the size that we are, we are delicate in the respect that, yes, we can grow plenty of food, but the cost of getting them out of the country is, is you know, we're a long way from it's our market. tyranny of distance. Yeah. So we are different to a lot of the countries that we're being compared to in many, many ways. And one of the one of the issues that we have is simply a very small domestic population. Mm. Even Australia, with five times more people than we have, they have a great domestic market, and farmers can feed into that. There's demand um, yeah. to soak up the supply. We have more supply than we have demand for locally, so we have to export, and we have to provide our our growers, our producers, with a platform to export without putting endless hurdles in the way, without creating, um, gosh, when I think of just the most recent ones, we have ridiculous nitrogen limits now for coastal fresh waters um, that are impossible to achieve in many cases because the water coming in off the, I, I'm going to digress for a minute, but the water coming off the Alps. It's already holds, high in nitrogen. Yes, but people don't realize, I mean, I've been in fertilizer for nearly 20 years. People don't realize that there's 78,000 tons of nitrogen above every hectare of ground. And when it, if you look up at the Southern Alps on a Norwest evening and see the flashing of lightning, the lightning is stripping nitrogen out of the atmosphere. It washes down in the rain to the, to the creeks and rivers, and it goes down those rivers all across the plains and down into the aquifers. And farmers are pumping that water up and irrigating it out uh, it's it has nitrogen, a small amount of nitrogen in it, but it's coming in at 3.2, and they want it to be 2.4. This is milligrams of nitrogen per yeah. litre of water. They want it lower at the coastal freshwater than it's coming in at the top in many cases. And, you know, farmers are worried that they're not going to get their irrigation consents renewed because regional councils... Oh, God, don't get me started here. Filled with but, wombles. Well, look, regional councils have been great, except now we have designated seats with iwi, non-elected iwi, with the power of veto over any decision they make, and it's causing a lot of hassles. It's undemocratic um, for a start. Oh, look, mm. yeah. But farmers, they're stressed enough. As I say, they're running multi-million dollar businesses. They don't have, a, in most cases, they don't have a board of directors or a, an accountant and a lawyer on, on, the, on their staff. Um, they're just mums and dads, and they're trying to battle this endless bureaucracy, these roadblocks that are put in their way day after day. And I, I brought Shane Jones down to mid-Canterbury, and I took him around and showed him some of the problems with the rivers, the flooding, the <laughs> nitrogen issues and all this. And he said, look, gone by Monday. Get us, yeah. get us half a chance. Get us in there. Gone by lunchtime on Monday. But we, we've got to couch that by... That was one of Reminding the greatest ourselves. lost, lost well, opportunities, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the, the RMA reform has just stagnated. Um, John Key had a chance to do that, but he refused to talk to Winston about it. So it's lost a lost opportunity that's 
10 yep. years later, we're no further along on RMA reform and any RMA reform that this government is producing is likely to end up with a more bureaucratic mess. Well, look, I, I think um, it would be prudent of Chris Luxon to take Winston under his wing and say to Winston, look, your best place to make these changes, you have a, the cultural mandate to do it. It's going to look a bit kind of tricky for me to do it. It's going mm. to take me years being who I am to do yep. this. So can you just go in there and, and be the fool guy? Go it's and, a, it's go a, and clean a, it up for us. A good rational response. Uh, I'm not sure Christopher Luxon's that smart, though, sadly. <laughs> oh, look, he's he's a smart man. You don't, you know, you don't run a an airline uh, without having the smarts. Mm. So I, I think he's a smart guy. I have confidence. I mean, yeah, I, let's face it. <laughs> I'd rather him uh, at the helm than Chris Hipkins again. I, yeah. I just, it, you know, I personally, I will be selling if if Hipkins and if the left get back in, I will, I will be selling property. Yeah. I'll be taking money out of the country because I just see that it's going to be really difficult to do so. This is what South Africans had to do. And then after it's a sad. while, they couldn't take their money out. Yeah. So there'll be a lot of money leaves this country early. You put a wealth tax into place and the wealthy will just let, they just leave, gone. Property's going to crash and there'll be nobody to take a wealth tax from. No, that's right. Just a, a last point. I notice in your New Zealand First uh, profile that you say that you're a staunch nationalist. Are we allowed to use that name, that that title, nationalist? We, we don't see that very often, but you say <laughs> you're a staunch nationalist. Now, don't get me wrong. Now, I used to be a globalist, you know, thinking that if we do all these things around the world, that everybody will um, sing Kumbaya and we'll all get on well together. And the reality of the situation is it isn't. So I've kind of become a nationalist, but I'm interested in that term. <laughs> why, why you use that? Well, like I said, it was written about me, not by me. But, <laughs> but I'm not going to shy away from it. I love this country. I absolutely love it with all my heart. Mm. And I desperately want to see a turning of the process of government back to how it used to be. Yeah. And I'm not seeing enough people get up and make a noise about what they're seeing. What's most worrying is that most people are not seeing it. Most yep. people are asleep at the wheel and they're told that, oh, look, co-governance is fine. You know, bring them around the table, let them in, give them a say. Well, that's just the beginning. And most people don't see where that's going to lead. Now, I want to get this country back how it was when I was growing up. I want I want New Zealand to be proud of itself again. Yep. I want it to become more like Norway than Zimbabwe. And if that's if that's going to get me into trouble by labeling me as a staunch nationalist, then bring it on. I don't yep. mind. Yeah. Like I said, not everybody's going to agree with me. Not everybody's going to agree with New Zealand first. And everybody has the right, well, so so far, everybody has the right to feel the way they feel. Um, that may change. Yeah. But I will defend democracy and, and freedom of speech and 
the maintaining of of capital incentive for people yep. to get out of bed and work hard. Because let's face it, we're all missing great uncles that went off to war to defend us. And yep. I'm not going to sit around and, and waste their lives by letting it go now. And on that note, Rob Ballantyne, I wish you all the best for the election. And uh, hopefully we're going to have your voice in Parliament because you sound like a very sensible bloke. And we need sensible blokes in Parliament to check the excesses of the past. So I wish you well for, for the election. And thank you for coming on The Crunch. Thank you, Cam. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Wow. Rob has a voice made for radio, and that's a real compliment. But what an engaging fellow. He shows a deep commitment to New Zealand and a genuine love of the country and people. It's people like Rob who we should be encouraging to stand for Parliament rather than the usual bunch of political careerists. I hope Rob has a decent list ranking so he can bring that warmth to our Parliament. Do you think the same? Don't forget to send comments to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.